I have a suspicion that our next guest, uh, beloved listeners, is going to make us uh, feel a little uncomfortable, and not merely because she has seen Boris Johnson naked, and not because of who she is, although she does describe her famous family as posh left-wingers, but because of what she has to say about middle-class privilege. Polly Toynbee is a columnist for The Guardian, a position she's held since, ooh, 1998. She was formerly the BBC's social affairs editor, and her journalism has won oodles of awards, including the Orwell Prize, and uh, Polly will be in Australia next month as a guest of the Adelaide Writers' Festival, where she'll be discussing her latest book, An Uneasy Inheritance, My Family and Other Radicals. Polly, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. How radical were your forebears? They were all very radical in terms of the times when they lived. I've been back several generations. They were... uh, began with my great-grandfather, Gilbert Murray, who came from Australia and came from an Irish background. And I think the radicalism was very much part of the Irish tradition, if you like. He was always anti-colonial. He was always anti-capital punishment, pro-votes for women. All of the radical causes that at the time were very unpopular. He stood for election, uh, he campaigned in Oxford Union debates and lost, lost and lost again. It's a story about how in their lifetimes they were minority radicals and had to get used to losing. And if I could show them how life is now, I think they'd be amazed at how many battles they won. Polly, I I recall him being a mate of uh, Bertrand Russell, my childhood hero. Yes, indeed. He was a cousin of my great-grandmother and very much of that tradition. I mean, I remember when he was very, very old and he was running the most radical element of the campaign for nuclear disarmament and lying down in the street in his 90s and being arrested. He was very much of that tradition. Tell me about Sir Terence Murray, the the first colonial politician to campaign against well, both the transportation of convicts and three cheers of the death penalty. Yes, he was a very radical for his time. He also organised the collection of uh, local languages from the um, native Australians and was the only person who was really interested in them and a great supporter of, of their rights, despite the fact that he had this colonial role and he became a you know, the Speaker of the uh, New South Wales Parliament and was very much an official figure, but not very much in tune with the times in Australia. He was a uh, radical vegetarian. <laughs> my my great grandfather was uh, a vegetarian and a teetotaler. And an <laughs> atheist, bless his heart. And an atheist, head of the humanists. And um, I think. Also, the teetotal came from his father. Terence pretty much died of drink. And all the way through the family, they <laughs> seem to be temperance, alcoholics, temperance, alcoholics. <laughs> well, I am in awe of Arnold Toynbee, the world-famous historian. 
Yes, indeed. That's my my grandfather who married into that Murray family and was very much also uh, a great internationalist, a passionate supporter of the United Nations, the League of Nations, constantly disappointed by the way the world worked out. He was there at the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which he was strongly against because he thought the Germans were made to pay much too high reparations and it would lead to another war, which of course it did. But he was always also rather on the losing side of being an optimist about world peace uh, at a time when it wasn't fashionable. And in the year of your birth, his uh, face was on the cover of time. Well, yes, indeed. He was a bit like Say Fukuyama, he became a great sort of fashionable historian, taken up by the Americans in a big way, partly because he was such a prophet of the the rise of the East and the fall of Europe. And so I think there were a lot of people in America who liked the idea that America and further eastwards were the future and that, uh, you know, Europe was in decline. Tell me about your uh, maiden great aunt, Jocelyn Toynbee. Oh, well, my family is simply full of professors. I mean, Gilbert was a Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford. Jocelyn Toynbee was Professor of Archaeology at Cambridge. And their younger sister, Margaret, was only a don, so they rather looked down on her for being... (laughs) (laughs) Now, your your father, I love him because he was the, uh, the first ever Como president of the Oxford Union. Yes, indeed. He was a communist up until 1939 and they hit the Stalin Pact when a whole lot of people marched out of the Communist Party at that point and was never a communist again. He was always a radical. He was a founder of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. He was a a great protester and campaigner. He then became a sort of early ecologist in a way and could see that the world would starve if wool went on eating meat. So he became a vegetarian and he founded an agricultural commune with his house, uh, giving it away to uh, a commune of a whole lot of people who increasingly just turned out to be kind of hippies crashing out and were not much interested in doing the digging necessary for an agricultural commune. And the thing fell apart in absolute disaster. But it was a very ideological, a very idealistic idea. Um, Well, take the the C&D on its own. Heavens above, the scale of those marches was immense. Absolutely. I went on them from age 14 onwards. They were absolutely vast. Um, Did they have any impact? It's hard to know. I mean, here we are still with nuclear weapons, if anything, proliferating. Um, We've become afraid by other things instead. Perhaps we're more afraid of uh, the climate crisis now than we are of nuclear destruction. But it was you know, very much in his mind. He was a bit of a millennialist, really. He always believed the world was going to come to an end one way or another. I mean, here's an example of how passionately he felt fear of nuclear holocaust. When we went on holiday to Wales, we had to turn around in the car and come back again because he'd forgotten the large jar of suicide pills he kept to kill us all in case the bomb dropped. Because we'd all read Neville Shoots on the beach, we all knew the effects of strontium and how horrible death would be from radiation sickness. So he always had these suicide pills with us. We eyed them with a certain amount of alarm. 
Where do you think your dynasties are pro-liberal, anti-conservative bent came from? You can't seem to identify many in the working class. Absolutely not. This is a story about being middle-class radicals, about being middle-class on the left, and the embarrassments and sometimes the rather comic situations and how to deal with the awkwardness. And then there are people who always attack us as being champagne socialists or, you know, if you're so socialist, why don't you give everything away with the idea that unless you're Mahatma Gandhi, you know, you're corrupt or you're you're hypocritical. And this is a book really exploring that because lots of people write wonderful books about coming up from nowhere and how they've you know made it in their lives. But I don't think people write very often about being middle class, about being born privileged, understanding it and coping with it. Because if you're on the left, you do feel embarrassed. I have no idea what my life would have been like if I hadn't been born with every educational privilege and encouragement. If I'd been born working class, I have no idea. So there's always a temptation for middle class people to seek their working class roots to prove they've made it on their own merit. So I had a good look. Uh, I rummaged through everything I could find about my family. I couldn't find one single working class route, not one, not a twig, not a branch, nothing. There was a an Australian great-great-grandmother who'd been a governess. And I thought, ah, oh, maybe her. But no, she came from a very educated family had, who'd run out of money and come down in the world. So nope, I can't claim to have made it on my own merit in any way. There's a Toynbee Hall in uh, London's East End named in honour of your uh, grandfather's uncle. Tell me about him and some of the uh, the do-gooders who, uh, who visited there. It's a very remarkable place. It was called after me. He was a social worker in the East End, but he was also an academic at Oxford, and he uh, invented the word industrial revolution. He was very interested in You're workers. You're kidding, work. really? Yes, he did. He um, very interested in, in, in workers' rights and in promoting the cause of trade unions and was a great organiser in the East End, um, but died incredibly young. And so his friends, who were Henrietta and Samuel Barnett, who were also great reformers, set up Toynbee Hall in his name. And it is there it is now. It's a rather odd place because it looks like a little miniature Oxford college. And inside it has all the heraldry from all the Oxford colleges, which is a bit peculiar for the East End, but it was very much the fashion of the time for universities to set up what they call settlements in poor areas to try and uh, help people. And actually, Toynbee Hall remains to this day a really important community centre. It provides these days for particularly Bangladeshi families who live around there, English teaching and courses of all kinds. And We we um, have to record the fascinating fact that uh, Lennon spoke there in 1902. It's amazing how many people have spoken there. Clement Attlee worked there for quite a long while and said that's where he learnt his socialism. William Beveridge, who was the founder of our welfare state, was one of the leaders there as well. So it's always been a great sort of breeding ground for intellectual radicals uh, to go and work and understand about worlds of poverty. It's also a place to serve penance. I'm thinking of uh, Profumo, who was the Secretary for of State for War, and he served the, the rest of his days after the disgrace of the 
Keeler affair, working in the building. Makes it sound rather like a punishment, doesn't it? But it doesn't feel the punitive place at all. No, I mean, he, he did very well because of his conservative contacts. He managed to get a, raise a lot of money from people in the city because it's on the, the borders of the city where there's a lot of money, which borders right up against an area which is still very poor and has had waves of immigrants. So in the beginning, there were Russian immigrants, there were Jewish immigrants, um, one one wave after another, now it is very much a, a Bangladeshi community, but always people arriving in the poorest part of London and in need of help of various different kinds. I understand that a very important play by uh, George Bernard Shaw, Major Barbara, was inspired by your great-grandfather. That's true. Um, Gilbert and Mary Murray, who were these, you know, great radicals, they were the ones who were vegetarians and very temperance. But he was a great friend of Bernard Shaw because Gilbert Murray translated Euripides and a lot of the great Greek playwrights into English, into rather Swinburne-type poetic English, and they became very fashionable plays. So he had a lot to do with the London theatre. And Bernard Shaw, who was also a vegetarian and a teetotaler, they became great friends. But Bernard Shaw made this rather mocking play, Major Barbara, about their, again, the clash between high ideals and the real world. So it was about them being offered an inheritance of, of a, a, an arms factory that would make lots of money for their good causes. Um, so it's a, you know, that endless Shavian discussion between do we take the money from a corrupt source in order to do good? In the end, they do. And uh, one of those good dilemmas. But certainly, Major Barbara herself is quite a, a fearsome character. And I think that was my great-grandmother. Your book is not just a memoir. It's also a reflection on uh, on what you describe as the angst of the middle class left. Talk to me about that. Well, I think it's exploring my own feelings about spending most of my life writing about social issues, social affairs editor of the BBC, endlessly writing about social problems, about poverty, about housing, about health, all of those things, and being very aware of my own privilege and how do you cope with those things. I think the answer is you do what you can wherever you are. You know, you might give away some of your wealth or you might just spend your time campaigning and writing about as best you can to alert people to what happens in the real world. And it is, after all, the middle-class people who have most influence and you have to use your influence wherever you are. You also but, tackle issues like philanthropy the, and the paradoxes involved in that. Well, philanthropy is often the excuse for the very, very rich saying, well, we earn these huge salaries in the city because we can give away some money. Well, a lot of them don't give away much money. And Per capita, they give away a much lower proportion of their earnings than the poor do. The poor give away much more. But never mind, it, it's still sizable sizeable amount of money is raised from philanthropy. But I don't think that's a, a good excuse for why we should have such grotesque inequality between those earners. I mean, we, we put together a focus group of people who were 
highest earners in the city, the city lawyers and the city bankers, some of them earning up to 10 million. We had a focus group together with a professor from the London School of Economics and asked them what they thought people earned. They had no idea. Here were the people running our money. They had no idea what the benefit levels were and no idea they, what other people earned. They thought that most people were on the higher rate of tax, only 10%. And they said, oh, well, everybody we know. Well, yes, everybody they know. They find it very hard to believe that the great majority of the population were earning something that they regard as a, as a poverty wage. So this non-understanding, this ignorance from top to bottom is something I suppose that is what I write about and hope to reach out to those people, tell them how society really looks and how ignorant they are. Now, You've written several, of course, but uh, this one took you 10 years. How come? Well, I wasn't quite sure where it was going. Writing a memoir is quite difficult in that it has to have a point and a purpose. And I wanted to combine a social history of what's happened through the last you know, three, four generations of my family, what's happened socially and what happened to them, but also about where we are now and how we got here. And I wasn't quite sure how to combine the personal and the often quite comic stories because everybody's family is full of all sorts of curious characters and curious events. Um, how to blend the two. So it took me a long time to weave the two together and also to do the research necessary. And uh, I think in the end, I've managed to do that. It is about both the way we live now and about uh, my family. You started writing the book after making a, uh, a series for Radio 4. Is there a connection? Certainly. It was uh, a programme for Radio 4 called The Class Ceiling, about how class works now, about how we're going backwards in terms of social mobility. Birth is destiny more now than it was when I was born, which would certainly have shocked all of my relatives. And in the course of doing that, the producer said, well, you've got to talk about your own background. I have never written till this book anything personal, whatever. I've always written about, you know, social conditions of one kind or another, about the NHS, I've written about all sorts of subjects, but never myself or my family. So I was very contorted by this and said, no, no, I don't want to talk about myself. And he, the producer said, but you must explain your own social background. So I then had to confess, maybe they would have known from my voice anyway on Radio 4, that I was very middle class, had always been middle class, was born privileged. And that got me thinking and I thought, well, Write about this. People don't fess up to it. Write about how it is to be born with a silver spoon, to be born with everything given to you. It's and, very much warts and all, though, isn't it? Because uh, you've already mentioned the alcoholism and there were, you cite cases of depression and, quote, nervous vapours. It's a degree of candidate. Does it distress any of your family? Have you angered some of your relatives? Oh, not at all. Everybody knows about this. And also, it's been written about before and in certain ways. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, my father struggled with drink all his life, and so did his brother. And I think you have to be honest about those things. I think most families have alcoholism in them somewhere, and it certainly seems to ripple all the way through mine, as I say, combined with extreme temperance. I think one may lead to the other one way or another. Tell me about Rosalind. 
oh, that's my wicked grandmother. She's the only character who's really bad in the book. I think every good book needs a villain, and that's her. She was a poisonous character who rebelled against her Murray relatives, against their Puritanism, against their idealism, and did everything she could, really, to offend them, uh, she even converted to Catholicism, which for my great-grandfather, who was the head of the humanists, was very shocking. But she treated her children abominably well, she, badly. She was very, very snobbish, arrogant, unpleasant in every kind of way. And the great hypocrisy was that she was always very disapproving of anybody in the family who strayed in any way. I had a cousin who had a, a child outside uh, wedlock and she never spoke to her again. After she died, her diaries turned up, which showed that she had been living with an ex-monk with the wildest sex life going <laughs> on. There are so many famous names. We've mentioned, uh, of course, Bernard Shaw. There's all, there's Evelyn Waugh, Bertrand Russell of Loving Memory, Churchill's a nephew. Uh, and there's also Jessica Mitford, Rudyard Kipling, Gandhi, Einstein, for heaven's sake, Lawrence of Arabia, on and on the, uh, you know, the, the credits roll. Uh, you must be astonished by, by the roll call. Well, it was, and I think I found out a lot of this as I went along, that my great-grandfather Gilbert was a very sociable character, but also because he was president of the League of Nations in Britain, um, was a great entertainer of all of these kinds of people and had them to stay with him in his house outside Oxford and knew them all very well. And they were all people who were, again, campaigning for great international causes, particularly anti-colonialism, which was a great passion of his hatred of the empire and of the colonial attitudes. Your father's friendship with one of the uh, Cambridge Five, uh, is it true he didn't know... Uh, that Donald McLean was a spy? He had no idea at all. He and Donald McLean were friends uh, at Oxford and Donald McLean at, at one point was a member of the Communist Party quite openly, but he left and noisily and, and, and my father was quite upset by that. They had rows and then when he joined the Foreign Office, he said, no, I've decided to join the ruling class and my father believed him. I mean, he really did not think in any way because they had so many arguments about it. He didn't think in any way that he become an undercover uh, communist and when he did flee uh, and he was utterly shocked also because Donald McLean was an even worse alcoholic than my father. <laughs> my father thought how can you keep a secret like that uh, when you're in that state of drunkenness um, but possibly the drink was a way of coping with and disguising the double life he was living. You were also accused of being a spy. Well, yes. This is a book I was writing about manual work and I took a number of jobs as a cleaner, as a working in factories, working um, in schools, working in a care home. And I saw a job advertised to be a cleaner in MI5 offices. So I applied. I never heard back. When the head of MI5 met my editor, then Alan Rusbridger of The Guardian, said, we do object to the fact that one of your journalists has been trying to infiltrate us. <laughs> I was only trying to get a job as a cleaner. I wasn't trying to be a spy. 
I have to ask you about uh, your encounter with the nude Boris Johnson. Well, yes, when I was very young, or just before I was going to Oxford, I was going out with Boris Johnson's uncle, very nice man. It was a sad story. I got pregnant, I had an abortion. It was quite tragic, but I always feel that if you've had an abortion, you should say so because lots of women have had abortions and it doesn't do you any harm and it's a very important freedom in your life to decide when or not to have children. But in the course of going out with him, uh, he took me to visit his sister who just had Boris. And there was Boris lying on a bath mat, very fat, very pink, uh, quite noisy, uh, a shock of bright yellow hair. And I must say, having a look at him also encouraged me the idea that this was not a time for me to have a baby. And I didn't like the look of him much. You write about... Uh... Well, you write in the book that the class system in Britain holds sway more now than ever before. Is that possible? Well, people often um, judge it by habits or the fact that people often wear the same clothes or uh, mannerisms. What really matters is the level of social mobility. It is now, without doubt, and all the research shows so less likely that somebody from a working class background will escape from that. It is less likely that somebody from a middle class background will slide down the ladder. Birth is destiny more than it was. And it's very shocking. People find that quite hard to believe because the convention is, oh, we're all classless now, you know. But of course, it just isn't true. You know, if you're working class, you go to a not very good school in a quite poor area your chance of making it to university is still very much less. I mean, it's more than it was because we have so many more university places, but proportionately, it's still quite low. The programme spends a lot of time worrying about uh, UK politics and uh, I'm wondering how you think class will play out in the upcoming election. Well, I think it does matter. I think there was... A sudden great surge under Boris Johnson and Brexit. Brexit was the great deception. It told working class people, you know, a lot of your problems are Europe, when in fact our problems are our own and our own social structures and our own unjust tax system. So um, I think those people who did vote strongly for Brexit and for Boris realised that they were fooled and they're all going to swing back this time, according to the polls. Polly, thank you so much for coming on the programme. It's just been terrific. And Polly will be in Australia next month as a guest of the Adelaide Writers' Festival where, yes, she will be discussing her latest book, An Uneasy Inheritance, My Family and Other Radicals, published by Allen and Unwin and Atlantic Books. Thanks, Polly.